a hyper-competent perfectionist who grew up with a sewing needle in one hand and a hammer in the other. That's how Lara Castaira described her older sister, Martha Stewart. Indeed, there have always been two Marthas, the matronly domestic homemaker and the shrewd, ruthless media mogul. When these two sides worked in harmony, Martha seemed near perfect. When they fell into discord, she embodied the worst of American wealth and privilege. Most people know a little about Martha's conviction for insider trading and the jail term that followed, but few understand that the forces behind her downfall were the same that built her empire and made her a household name. It was the sewing needle and the hammer, the two Marthas. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes, but what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we'll examine how Martha Stewart went from a working-class family to global celebrity to federal prison, all while remaining one of America's most recognizable and influential women. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In August 1941, America was in transition. After tightening its belt through the Great Depression, the country was poised to enter the most optimistic period in American history. This was the world Martha Castira Stewart was born into, one that understood the wariness of poverty and the allure of the American dream. Martha was the second of six children in the Castira family. It was a tight squeeze in their New Jersey home. As a teenager, Martha often washed her hair in the kitchen sink rather than fight for the bathroom. And on her father's modest income, providing for all eight family members proved a constant struggle. Still, her mother, also named Martha, managed to bring a sense of grandeur to the home. The daughter of a seamstress, she believed homemaking required creativity and self-reliance. Martha Sr. provided home-cooked meals, fashionable clothing, and immaculate decor, all from scratch and talent. And Martha Jr. absorbed these skill sets. From an early age, she valued the artistry her mother put into building a home. However, Martha's father, Edward, brought a different energy to the family. By most accounts, he was a genius with a knack for almost anything he put his mind to, including cooking and homemaking. 
But rather than being a source of pride, Edward's abilities seemed to frustrate him. He saw himself as a man of great potential, so his quaint life was only a disappointment. Before we continue with the psychology of the Castyra family, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Though it's unlikely he was ever diagnosed as such, Edward displayed the qualities of a perfectionist. According to professor of psychology Joachim Stober, perfectionism is when a person is constantly striving for flawlessness, which they achieve through overly critical self-evaluation. But within that umbrella term, there can be variations. Stober describes two kinds of perfectionism, self-critical and narcissistic. Based on descriptions of his behavior, Edward could have been the narcissistic type. He was known to set impossible standards to prove to himself that he was unique. And these standards plagued the Castyra household. In the middle of the Depression, Edward left his job as a PE instructor because he considered it beneath him. After that, he moved frequently through careers, taking college courses at night to advance himself. And when he settled as a pharmaceutical salesman, he turned his perfective tendencies on his family. Edward expected the home to be spotless. When the children finished their chores, he'd inspect their work while Martha and her siblings stood by, waiting anxiously for his judgment. Edward almost always found some flaw and made them start again. This made for an orderly, but not necessarily happy, home. It seemed that Edward never felt fulfilled in his own life, so he tried to mold the perfect family. He refused to consider himself ordinary. That was unacceptable. Though this might seem a miserable upbringing, Martha was always quick to defend her father. The two were very similar, and she inherited his high standards and his ambition. They also both suffered bouts of insomnia and often spent nights playing Scrabble together in the kitchen. So as she grew up, Martha had learned domesticity from her mother. She wanted to build the perfect home her parents never had the money to afford. But that perfectionist itch, the visions of greatness, that was all Edward. When she was 15, Edward convinced Martha to pursue a career outside of school, modeling. With her Americana good looks, Martha landed a shoot at the famous Fifth Avenue department store, Bonwit Teller. The introduction to Manhattan, with its skyscrapers, glamour photo shoots, and wealthy urbanites, changed her. Just like her father, she dreamt big. She glimpsed high society and wanted to be a part of it. That might be why, in 1959, Martha set her sights on Barnard College, the sister school to Columbia University. At the time, college for women was seen mostly as an avenue to rich husbands. 77% of college-educated women went on to marry, but only 17% landed full-time jobs. But Martha continued her modeling and dated very little. Her friends say she was driven by schoolwork and considered most boys hardly worth her valuable time. However, Martha soon met a thoughtful, well-traveled pre-law student named Andy Stewart. The two fell in love, and Martha made it no secret she appreciated Andy's wealthy, upper-class background. 
If she wanted a white picket fence and access to New York's high society, Andy could give it to her. Still, part of Martha didn't buy into her future as just another housewife. She was smart, stylish, and most importantly, aware of how the world perceived her. This side of Martha wanted to succeed independently to prove that she could. And that meant taking her part-time modeling to the next level. In 1960, Martha submitted a portfolio of her modeling work to Glamour magazine's top 10 best-dressed college girls. She knew what they were looking for, a couture yet relatable girl, free of serious commitments. For that reason, she downplayed her relationship with Andy, writing of herself, Life pleases her, including a young man named Andy, art and architecture. And it worked. Not only was Martha selected in the top 10 list, she received a full-page spread. The Glamour article sent her modeling career into overdrive. Martha got a flat in downtown Manhattan and was soon entertaining a move to Paris. She was headed for the high life she'd wanted. But there was one bump in the road. Andy realized that the window on their relationship was closing. So he proposed. Martha turned Andy down several times, saying they were too young. After all, she was only 19. But her reluctance probably also had something to do with her dual visions for her future. Martha did want to build a traditional home, as her mother had shown her. And for that, she needed a husband and children. But she also wanted independent professional success. In such a strictly bound society, she didn't know how to reconcile the two. Her conflict was clearest in her father's reaction. He begged her to refuse Andy's proposal. He told her that married life would squander her potential. He pointed to his own marriage as proof. This time, however, Martha didn't follow her father's advice. On July 1, 1961, she married Andy and became Martha Castira Stewart. But Martha wasn't ready to abandon her career. She insisted on continuing her modeling to bring in her own income. And since Andy's job as a law clerk couldn't buy more than a cheap apartment, she needed to get creative if she wanted a house. One solution was to look outside of Manhattan, way outside, for a place in the country. In 1965, soon after the birth of their first daughter, Alexis, Martha and Andy decided to purchase an abandoned schoolhouse 100 miles from their apartment in New York. They called the schoolhouse Middlefield, and it needed serious renovations. When they bought it, water for bathing and cooking had to be hauled up from a nearby stream. But this time, it was her mother's influence that would spur Martha forward. With design, ingenuity, and a lot of elbow grease, she believed she could cultivate Middlefield into her dream home. But hers was a dream passing out of fashion. In the late 60s, the concept of the housewife was in crisis. Betty Friedan's 1963 book, The Feminine Mystique, had diagnosed an epidemic of unhappiness among American women, and studies reported that housewives frequently suffered from depression, anxiety, insomnia, and other illnesses. These studies pointed to the ennui of highly capable women limited to roles in the home where they were unchallenged and unfulfilled. 
But if Martha felt that way about her domestic duties, she dealt with it through dogged, obsessive work. Every weekend, she, Andy, and Alexis drove the 200-mile round trip from the city to refurbish Middlefield. They gave up every single weekend for years to work on the project. That was the single-mindedness Martha could channel. But it wasn't all she put her focus on. While the house was in rehab, Martha began hosting dinner parties back in the city. What started as sporadic gatherings of Andy's co-workers soon bloomed to regular parties with the couple's entire Manhattan circle. Sometimes 90 people in all. It was another way for Martha to find glamour through homemaking. She dressed the apartment, catered the dinner, and hosted as if it were a professional event. And Martha's events were always perfect. But it's not easy to live beside perfection. Andy knew this better than anyone. Through the renovations, the hosting, and their dual careers of law and modeling, the Stewart marriage was suffering. Martha could be belittling and controlling. She only slept four hours a night and attacked homemaking with an obsessive drive. And though Andy tried to keep up her pace, Martha had no patience for substandard work. This fits in with Stober's exploration of perfectionism, which further breaks down into self-oriented and other-oriented. Basically, a perfectionist can set standards for themselves or for those around them. These two can and do frequently overlap, and just like her father, Martha expected the same excellence from her family as she did from herself. Eventually, though, Martha had to admit that the modeling wasn't working out. She was 27, and fashion trends had moved away from her classic look. But rather than allow herself free time, she sought to exchange one career for another, something fast-paced and lucrative. Naturally, in 1968, she decided to become a stockbroker. If this sounds like a bizarre pivot, it did fit Martha's ambitions. Though the brokerage world was male-dominated, anyone who could sell was in. And Martha's father Edward was a salesman who taught Martha the art of pitching. So when Martha interviewed for the securities firm Monis, Williams & Seidel, partner Andy Monis declared that he'd found a woman who could sell anything. After so much time devoted to homemaking, Martha strolled into the heart of Wall Street and became a star. Clients were charmed by her beauty, grace, and obvious intelligence. In only two years, she was the top earner for the firm. She finally had the paycheck and professional respect outside the home she'd yearned for. But it wasn't to last. You see, Martha frequently brought her personal friends in on securities deals, and she pushed one stock, Levitt's Furniture, hard. But when the market went from bull to bear, the stock plummeted. People close to Martha lost real money. It was an embarrassment. Meanwhile, Martha's troubles at home were worsening. The job not only frayed her relationship with Andy, but it began to affect young Alexis, who couldn't handle the hectic schedules of her parents. The stress at work and at home became too much, and in 1973, Martha retired from the brokerage firm, letting her second career fall by the wayside. 
For the first time, Martha was directionless. Her professional life had stalled, and her home life was in turmoil. She needed to find something new. Martha wouldn't settle for ordinary. Until this point, the two Marthas had never been in lockstep. She was always splitting time between the house and modeling, or the brokerage firm and cooking dinner. That changed with the help of her friend, Norma Collier. Norma had long been impressed by Martha's dinner parties and approached her with a proposition. She wanted to start a catering business. They'd make what appeared to be home-cooked meals for wives who didn't have time to host dinner parties themselves. Martha jumped on board, and almost immediately, business took off. At 32, Martha was finally doing what she enjoyed most, homemaking, cooking, and entertaining as a business. She'd combined her two passions and found instant success. In other words, she'd found her calling. Little did anyone know just how far this new venture would go and how ruthless Martha would become along the way. Coming up, Martha Stewart takes over the world. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Her entire life, Martha Stewart had split her talents between two realms, the domestic and the professional. But with the 1973 launch of her catering business, The Uncatered Affair, Martha found success. But Martha was a perfectionist. The same pressure her father put on her as a child, she applied to everyone around her. And this drive for excellence came at a cost. Only a few months into the business, her business partner Norma Collier noticed a change in Martha. She was demanding, micromanaging, and belittling. During cooking classes, she'd embarrass Norma in front of the staff for not being up to snuff. When Norma tried to give her space, Martha sought out more. It was the same experience her husband Andy faced when working on Middlefield, a 50-50 partnership quickly became 100% Martha. Martha certainly thought she could do better than Norma, so she began taking on catering jobs behind her partner's back and keeping the profits for herself. When Norma found out, she was disappointed and hurt. 
Norma had wanted to start a small catering business with a friend, not vie for control. Only six months after they'd launched the uncatered affair, the two dissolved their partnership. But Martha was far from finished. No, she had a vision that extended beyond cooking. Just like with her modeling career, she understood that she was selling herself as much as her product, and she had the perfect role model for the kind of career she could develop, Julia Child. In the 1960s and 70s, Julia had done more than introduce French cooking to American kitchens. She'd also become one of the most beloved personalities in television history. And she'd left a rubric for her success. Cookbooks, TV programs, personal branding. Martha figured she could follow in Julia's footsteps for a new generation. Women of the 80s were increasingly drawn to the workforce, but they still wanted the trappings of a traditional home. If Martha could tap into that market, she could explode. But to do so, she needed to project an image of ease and flawlessness. The first step in her eyes was a brick-and-mortar location, so she sought out an upscale food court called The Common Market and pitched a pop-up stand featuring her dinners and baked goods. One of the owners remembered she was almost too good to be true. They said that, quote, it was really important for her to present perfection as opposed to a vulnerable self. The image worked, and Martha got her stall. But before long, her ambitions outpaced her surroundings. Martha fought with local health inspectors, who found her minimalist setup not up to par. And the common market found her self-promotion too aggressive. So they terminated her stall. But Martha pressed onward, returning to catering with renewed vigor. Her brief stint at the common market had given her a bigger following and even a mention in the New York Times. Despite the setbacks, she was gaining clients. Then disaster struck. In 1977, at the age of 39, Andy received a cancer diagnosis. He and Martha had been dysfunctional for years, but his sickness brought new instability into their home. According to friends, Martha cared for Andy during this time, cutting back on her verbal abuse and criticisms. But personally, Martha went into a depression. She told a friend that she was nothing without Andy and didn't know what she would do without him. Even as Andy recovered and went into remission, another blow shook Martha's personal life. In 1979, just two years after Andy's diagnosis, her father passed away. He was only 68. When Martha spoke at his service, she said that the most important and influential man in her life was gone forever. With such massive life events, some might have slowed down their work to absorb their emotions. Martha sped up. She expanded from catering private dinners to large-scale events and earned herself some real clout in the New York food scene. In fact, her company had garnered enough prominence to release one of the foundational blocks of her empire, the cookbook. Entertaining was to be a cookbook that put all others to shame. Martha knew the writing had to be superb, even beyond her usual standards, so she brought on a ghostwriter, no less than the former editor of The New Yorker, Elizabeth Hayes. 
but Martha took absolute control of content, layout, and presentation. The book needed to be every essence of her brand distilled into a single product. More than ever, she had to be perfect. As the book neared completion, rumors started to swirl. Allegedly, Martha brought in small-time chefs to pitch recipe ideas, then inserted the recipes into the book without giving their creators any credit. And cookbook author Barbara Tropp accused Martha of wholesale lifting recipes from her book, The Modern Art of Chinese Cooking. Though Martha dismissed all of this, it wasn't the only issue the book faced. There was also the price tag. To break even, entertaining had to outsell most of the cookbook market, even at a significantly higher price point. Everyone at the publishing company doubted the book would be a success. Everyone but Martha. I have good ideas, Martha once famously said. I know what women want. And entertaining was the proof. The book exploded, outpacing sales projections by miles. Critics raved over it, and bookstores sold out. The writing and recipes were praised, but most remarkable was Martha herself, who appeared throughout the book in full-color photographs. Martha later said it was these photos that clinched the book's success. People didn't just love the food, they loved Martha. Offers and endorsements poured in, including from a brand that could make Martha a household name, Kmart. The retail giant was looking for a fresh face for its revitalized decor section and offered Martha a multi-million dollar deal. One Kmart rep pitched Martha to the board saying, she is America. What exactly did this mean? How could a woman with a cookbook embody a rapidly digitizing nation? In her paper, Martha Stewart as a Sociological Phenomenon, Dr. Magdalene Harris-Taylor writes that Martha bridged the gap between old-world housewives and new-age feminists by bringing domestic work into the public sphere. For decades, housework had been second-rate, simple, Martha made it artistic, inventive, and most importantly, professional. She elevated traditional gender roles without defying them, and that balancing act gave her power. From 1982 to 87, Martha published five more books. Her sixth, titled Weddings, was a testament to wedding design and to her own wedding to Andy. But behind the narrative of the book, the Stewart family was in crisis. Andy and Alexis were sick of playing a part in Martha's brand. So when she decided to shoot a TV special in their new home, they both refused to participate. Martha didn't let the conflict affect her work. Weddings was her greatest success since entertaining. The New York Times even called it an ode to perfection. But when it came to her family, Perfection was only the public image. Behind the scenes, Andy accused his wife of being controlling, obsessive, and belittling. It's tempting to label one of these sides, the public life or private life, as the real Martha, but they were equally valid takes on her personality, and both sides had made her a star. This duality shaped her career, but it also ended her marriage. 
In late 1987, a few months after the release of Weddings, Andy left the house for good. With news of Andy's departure hitting newsstands right beside Weddings, Martha stood to be the butt of the publishing world's joke. But she didn't back down, she doubled down. She wasn't going to let a little thing like divorce get in her way. Instead, she went to Time Warner and pitched a monthly magazine of the Martha brand. It was a long-shot idea, magazine subscriptions were down, and Martha's perfect household image was at its rockiest. But Martha had a reinvention plan. While she knew she could no longer represent the model nuclear family, she could still rule domesticity. She emphasized her gardening. She leaned into the self-satisfaction of homemaking. Without changing her core, she pivoted from the ideal housewife to the DIY single woman, unafraid to get her hands dirty. Time Warner didn't expect a hit, but they gave her the magazine anyway, and the first issue appeared in November 1990. Like all of her ideas, Martha Stewart Living caught on immediately. In it, Martha not only gave design tips, but also her memories and opinions on homemaking. It wasn't vulnerable, but it was personal, and audiences responded with empathy and fandom. Martha's rise was back on track. In fact, she was the fastest rising personality in the media sphere. In 1991, NBC's Today Show offered her a nationally broadcasted segment. The same year, Lifetime gave her a full half-hour program, which soon ranked as the most popular women's program on morning TV. She penned four more books through the decade, relying again on ghostwriters, and continued her reign as the Kmart spokesperson. For a woman of boundless ambition, there seemed little left for Martha to conquer. The pièce de résistance, however, would be her company. Martha wanted to own all her material to have complete control. So in 1997, she paid $85 million to Time Warner to purchase the rights to Martha Stewart Living and established Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. Few companies had ever generated so much buzz on Wall Street. On October 19, 1999, the day the stock went public, Martha was on the trading floor handing out scones to traders for breakfast, lending an air of circus to the morning. When trading closed for the day, Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia had gone from $19 a share to $36. At 58, Martha had become America's first female billionaire. She'd pulled off a miracle. In 20 years, she'd gone from a housewife to one of Time Magazine's 25 most influential people in America. She'd revitalized home living for an entire generation. Despite everything she'd lost, her father, her husband, the perfect traditional home, she'd achieved the unthinkable. And Martha seemed to believe the hype around her persona. In a 2000 interview with O Magazine, she said, I can almost bend steel with my mind. I can bend anything if I try hard enough. I can make myself do almost anything. 
As the turn of the century rolled around, Martha embodied the American dream, and America loved her for it. Sure, she had detractors who said she was controlling, that she was fake, that she set an unfair and antiquated standard for women. But by and large, people couldn't get enough of Martha. But the ambition that had driven her success could easily warp into greed. And when it did, it threatened to bring everything she'd built crashing down. Up next, Martha becomes America's most famous criminal. Now back to the story. By the turn of the century, Martha Stewart had become one of the most powerful personal brands in America. But like her sister said, Martha was the sewing needle and the hammer. And while the public associated her with the sewing needle, it was the hammer, her ambition and ruthlessness, that was in control most of the time. While Martha was taking over the homemaking industry, a booming economy had sweetened the public's attitudes toward Wall Street. But one name changed all that. Enron. A 2001 investigation charged the energy company with accounting fraud, casting a shadow over the entire economic sector. Wall Street, it seemed, was rigged, and the public wanted accountability for any CEOs who'd been lining their pockets by stepping outside the lines. This is when Martha made a big mistake. The story starts with two people, Sam Waxel and Peter Bakanovic. Waxel was the head of a pharmaceutical company called Imclone and a personal friend to Martha. Bakanovic was their shared stockbroker. In December of 2001, Waxel heard that the FDA wasn't going to approve his cancer treatment drug. He knew immediately that he was going to lose a fortune. So he tried to sell his stocks in Imclone, which is illegal, and tried to warn his friends and family, also illegal. The crime was insider trading which is trading stocks based on information not available to the public. It's like selling a house to buyers without telling them the foundation is rotten. And after Waxel's broker, Bakanovic, sold his shares, Bakanovic called Martha to tell her the Imclone stock was turning downward. This is where things get murky. An insane game of phone tag ensued between Martha, Bakanovic, and Waxel. Martha had just gotten off a plane to Mexico when she received the call. She paced the airport terminal, dialing furiously, desperate for news. She needed to gain control of the situation. She needed information. It's difficult to say how much Martha knew at any given point. Some reported that she only knew Waxel was selling his stocks. Others say she knew about the FDA ruling. All we know for sure is that before the FDA announcement, Bakanovic dumped all of Martha's stocks in Imclone. And when people found out, well, things got out of hand quickly. At first, things didn't seem too bad for Martha, legally speaking. To bring charges, prosecutors had to prove that she made the deal based on Waxel's tip-off, which is difficult. But the 24-hour news cycle didn't deal in subtleties, so her reputation took a hit. Before long, Martha was the poster child for insider trading. 
the press tore into her. Journalists and comedians took aim at her domestic persona. Jay Leno joked about her recipe for disaster. Mix one part arrogance with two parts incompetence. Simmer in the juices and then serve hot in the can. No one with her name recognition had been pulled into any of the recent economic scandals. And if charges were brought, it might be the biggest trial of the decade. For her part, Martha gave no ground. She held that she dumped her shares because the stock dipped below a predetermined amount, which is known as a stop-loss order. But these orders usually involve paperwork, and Martha had none to show. Her resistance fed the public garbage fire against her. The New York Times, who always gave Martha glowing reviews, released an op-ed entitled Cry No Tears for Martha Stewart, which accused her of being, quote, all too comfortable with unwarranted privilege. People wanted an apology, and Martha refused to yield. Sociologists have studied why the public became so hostile towards Martha. Australian researcher Norman Feather explained the anti-CEO trend of the 2000s as schadenfreude, or the joy of witnessing another's suffering. He says that when a successful person suffers, we celebrate because we feel less inferior. In other words, Martha had projected so much perfection that people loved watching her fail. Another theory is that we feel schadenfreude strongest for those closest to us. Nobody is truly envious of Michael Jordan's jump shot or Johnny Versace's designing skills, not in the same way we feel for a friend or sibling. But even though Martha was a billionaire media mogul, her persona reached people in their most intimate settings, their homes, their kitchens. Fans hadn't been forced to reconcile the two Marthas before, and suddenly seeing her business-minded side felt like a betrayal. But some of her supporters found this blatantly sexist. Of course she was business-minded. Anyone in her position had to be. So is it possible Martha received unfair treatment? Was she embarrassed more thoroughly and more vehemently than other CEOs? Studies such as those performed by Madeleine Heilman, professor of psychology at New York University, confirmed that powerful women do face a double standard and that ambitious behavior by men is often not excused for women. The words so often used to critique Martha, fake, manipulative, unlikable, tend to appear most frequently for women of power. Her treatment touched a deep nerve in American culture, and the controversy was set to get worse. But here's the craziest thing. All told, Martha only made $52,000 on the illegal trade. Why on earth would she risk her company, her fortune, and her credibility for such a measly sum? Maybe it was the memory of the Levitt's furniture loss from her stock brokerage days. Maybe it was the standard set by her father, always to strive for perfection. In doing so, it seems she'd let the hammer call the shots. But to recover, Martha needed to navigate her way back to her original domestic persona, the needle. She needed her two sides to work as equals once again. But with a criminal trial looming, 
that would have to wait. In June of 2003, the U.S. Attorney's Office of New York brought charges against Martha for securities fraud and obstruction of justice. To contain the bad press, her company board asked Martha to step down as CEO, restricting her presence in the magazine and on TV. Martha wanted to focus on her work, but it was all being taken from her. As long as the scandal continued, she was trapped. Then, in January 2004, the trial began. News vans crowded the sidewalk opposite the courtroom. Martha stepped out of her car, flanked by security guards, and waved to the crowds of supporters, as well as her detractors. She was entering the fight of her life, but she knew what she had to do. Stay composed, stay confident. Always project Martha. Inside, the prosecution brought witnesses testifying to how much Martha knew about the FDA approval, but it wasn't enough. By March, the judge threw out the securities fraud charges. Still, some witnesses claimed Martha had tampered with evidence, deleting texts or backdating paperwork. Just like always, she'd tried to make everything look perfect. Only this time, it was obstruction of justice. So in June, Martha was sentenced to five months in federal prison. The sentencing judge said he'd reduced the possible sentence of 25 years, partly because of the 1,500 letters from her fans begging for leniency. Even after the scandal, Martha still had a following to lose. Martha could have appealed her sentence and remained free during the interim. Instead, she opted to serve her time. The pragmatist in her knew that she had to move past this chapter. It was her only chance at another transformation. So on October 8, 2004, 63-year-old Martha checked into the Alderson Federal Prison for Women. Alderson's nickname was Camp Cupcake. But life behind bars was still a dramatic change for the lifestyle guru. Her phone time was limited to 300 minutes per month. All her rights to privacy were revoked. And though she applied for a job in the kitchen, she was assigned to cleaning toilets. Still, Martha found camaraderie in her fellow inmates, she taught classes on cooking, yoga, and business acumen, and built a loyal following, even in the big house. It was nourishment for her domestic side, the opportunity to teach and connect. Her time in prison forced her to slow down and take stock. She was already planning her comeback, of course, but the connections she made in prison forced her to question why she wanted to come back. She later wrote, it's no secret I'm accustomed to having control. What became all too apparent during my confinement was how many, many women are not in control of their lives or what happens to them. And Martha's previous persona hadn't empowered women. It pressured them into meeting impossible standards. Her entire life, Martha had pursued flawlessness, seeing vulnerability as weakness. But in prison, she changed her approach. 
she decided her bond with women didn't come from perfection. It came from the shared experience of taking a traditional role and reclaiming it, both professionally and personally. That was the way forward. On March 5th, 2005, Martha was released from prison to house arrest. The next few years would become one of the most legendary brand adaptations in the 21st century. Martha took to the airwaves with frequent jokes about her jail time, referring to it as her semester at Yale, and showing off her ankle bracelet, the one used to track her movements for house arrest, on TV. She returned to her lifestyle show, this time including a live audience, to show off her surprisingly loose sense of humor. And she knew how to spin the Wall Street angle. She decided to host the reality show The Apprentice, though the gambit failed because audiences found her too nice. Martha came off as a nurturing mentor, in contrast to her cold-blooded, ratings-boosting predecessor, Donald Trump. It was a loss for the show, but a win for Martha. The media saw a wry, more-at-ease Martha, but nothing contributed more to this pivot than her friendship with a certain all-star rap artist. Martha first met Snoop Dogg on her show in 2008, and their rapport delighted audiences. In one cooking segment, Snoop Dogg poured his branded cognac into their mashed potatoes. Instead of correcting him, Martha hooted with laughter. The pair's friendship blossomed through a series of TV appearances, culminating in their lifestyle stoner show, Martha and Snoop's Potluck Dinner. Of course, there was a strategy behind the friendship with Snoop. No one on the planet could be more the opposite of the uptight, waspy control freak Martha had been. If Snoop Dogg found Martha chill, the logic went, so could America. That said, Martha Stewart will never stop engineering her brand. Even her allusions to bad behavior seem curated. When asked if she ever smoked weed with Snoop Dogg, she responded, maybe just a little smoke, and not barbecue smoke. Every word is a precise, calculated move. If there are two Marthas, they're still battling for control. Still, that's what's made her one of the most powerful women in America. Martha is controlling. She is dogmatic. She is privileged. But more than anything, she's durable. And whether it's a new career, a new company, or a new crime, at 80 years old, it's still impossible to say what she'll do next. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. For more information on Martha Stewart, we found the book Martha Stewart Biography by Joanne F. Price, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. 
Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Connor Fitzgerald, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder, we'll journey through the many reasons people disappear Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.